0: Welcome back to How They Train. Today I'm joined by Beth McKenzie. I, I think summing up what Beth is most known for is actually really tough. Um, I've got her on the show because she was a professional triathlete and a bloody good one at that. Um, Beth is an Ironman and Ironman 70.3 champion. But during the, the time, she also founded two of the biggest apparel business in the world in uh, Wim Republic and Malo Republic. <laughs>
1: Uh, in the world.
0: In the world. She has two kids and, and has become like a, a pretty serious runner since uh retiring from triathlon. So yeah. Is that how you would sum yourself up, Beth?
1: Um, except for two of the biggest brands in the world. I mean, I'm not quite a Nike or Adidas anymore, uh, or yet. Um, but yeah, pretty much. I think I think that's it.
0: I reckon you're the you're the Nike of the triathlon world, aren't
1: you? <laughs> yep, and then having kids and a couple of businesses sort of put me out of the professional triathlon game, but, and COVID, I guess, but yeah. now I've just been doing some running and sounds, sounds pretty accurate to me.
0: Yeah. So what I actually, I'm interested in that is is the big reason you moved away from racing professionally because you were too busy, you had too much on your plate, or, or were you just done with the sport at that point?
1: Yeah. In 2020, um, Luke and I, so Luke McKenzie, my husband, he was a professional triathlete for a lot longer than me, his entire career. So about 25 years, um, I was only racing pro for about 10 years and in 2020, I turned 40 Luke was 39 and he was, he was really ready to be done. Um, he'd just been doing it for a really long time and wanted to have, you know, some big races to end it and move on with our businesses because we were super busy with our two businesses were growing and we had two young daughters that we wanted to start spending some more time with and i thought it was probably a good idea for me to also focus my energies elsewhere for a little while um and so we had this really big 2020 plan that we were really excited about um we were going to go over and train with our kids over in Girona for a while and do some riding in the Italian Dolomites and then culminate it all with a big challenge Roth finish it off um and then just sort of retire having had some more great experiences but as we all know with covid that didn't happen so our our retirement sort of fizzled out in our own ways in 2020 he ended up not really even doing a final race he he just left peacefully whereas i sort of I wouldn't say half-assed, but just kind of went through the motions and did a final Ironman because I wanted that um, feeling of completion. But we were just home in Nusa, and it was just a—it was a different experience than what we had imagined. But we, it was really time for us. I mean, we have—we've not outgrown the sport. We'll always, always love the sport. And I think by design, I—I I created two brands that will keep us in the sport forever. So um, I still get to go to all the events and cheer everyone on. Um, at the triathlons but for me now I'm just running mostly because it's the most um, time efficient for me and I've got some different goals for that so yeah.
0: And when you look back at your career because um, like I know you, you talk relative to Luke maybe you weren't in it for that long but you were still you were still in like in the on the pro circuit for a long time um, what do you look back at as like your your proudest moment or your maybe your biggest achievement uh, in your time as a professional triathlete?
1: Um, for me, there are definitely two of them. Um, I, I raced, I raced Kona twice as a professional, um, at the Ironman world championships. And that was, that was big for me, but neither of them really panned out as they don't for most people as I I never had the day that I thought that I really could have there. Um, but my two proudest achievements were just, um, winning Ironman Switzerland when my first daughter was just, 13 months old. So just after she turned one, that was huge for me. And then, um, after that, when Marlo, my second daughter was 11 months old was my next best race. And that was at Ironman cans in 2018. And I was only third that year, but it was, you know, it was really close behind Teresa Adam and Miranda Carfrey, who I looked up to my whole career. So those were bit really big, big days for me that I just look back on and think, Oh, that, that was pretty cool.
0: Yeah. I, I actually, I'm pretty curious to go back to that, that Ironman Switzerland race. So it was in 2015. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And had you, for like from the outside looking in, it sort of seemed to me like you got into Ironman pretty quickly. Would that be fair to say? Uh,
1: not really. Um, I, I started triathlons in 2008. I had I picked up running. One of my friends convinced me to start training for a marathon in 2007 and I had never run at all. I was like, I was a huge party animal throughout university. I smoked cigarettes for like over a decade. And one of my friends from New York city was coming out to San Diego where I was living at the time. And she said, Oh, will you please do this rock and roll marathon with me? And I was like, you're kidding. I don't run. I don't do anything. Um, but uh, sure. I'll train for this because I think I would just broken up with a boyfriend at the time. I wasn't sure exactly what I was doing in life. And I thought it would be, I don't know, give me some purpose. So I started training for that and, um, did the very, very common too much too soon thing. Uh, cause right away I I could tell I was like a pretty good runner, not great or anything. I wasn't nothing, nothing amazing, but I just, I would get out there and every Saturday was my longest run. And I was like, wow, I did seven miles. And then the next Saturday it was eight miles. And I just, I got really into it. And so it was probably running maybe only like 40 miles a week or 60 K a week, but having come from nothing, I got a stress fracture really quickly. Um, and was on crutches for five months. It was a femoral neck stress fracture. So that during that time, my dad, who was a cyclist, he said, Oh, you know, this is maybe you should buy a bike so that you can do something a bit more balanced and, uh, you know, not, not be so intense about one thing, but yeah, little did he know I was going to be like much more intense about triathlon than I ever was about (laughs) running. So yeah, that sort of led to my first triathlon. And then, um, that was in 2008. And I, I didn't do my first Ironman until I was till 2010. So it was a couple of years of doing some shorter distances, racing age group, just really enjoying it. I loved every race. I just loved the community. I got a whole sort of new, not new group of friends, but it opened me up to people who were doing this really cool thing that I'd actually never really heard of. Um, so I got in the pool, was starting to learn how to swim and just loved it. And I did in 2010, I did my first Ironman and then also at St. George, which was the first year they had one there in Utah. And then my second one also that year in Kona. Um, and so, yeah, I raced age group doing Ironmans for a few years. And then in 2012, I did my first professional race. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I love how you say you didn't get into Man too quickly, but you started in two thousand and eight and had already done one by two thousand and ten. Yeah, uh, a couple
1: of years <laughs> for
0: most people that is pretty soon. But I think it speaks to maybe, maybe, uh, maybe like where your head's at with it. And and I've always had this vibe about you just watching from afar that that you sort of almost just like live to train like I I get a vibe that you you love it and and that you like just doing way more than than what the average person likes to do so it doesn't surprise me that you just went straight in the deep end really um
1: Yeah, Yeah. no, I think that's right. I do. I do love to train. I don't, I don't love to train super, super long or hard anymore. Like I used to like, just feel like I could never do enough. And now I've, I'm definitely much more balanced, but I think at the time I was always looking for the next biggest, hardest thing. And how could I, how could I do that and get there? So, yep. I think you're somewhat right.
0: Let's unpack that a bit. So like, um, we could talk about those earlier races, but let, let's go to prior to your first win in Switzerland. So we, we jumped to 2015. What what sort of training were you doing in the lead up? So like, what would like a week look for you? Like, did you do a specific build up to it that you remember? Um, take, take us into your world there.
1: Right. Well, so 2013 was um, when I met Luke. And prior to that, I was also... I was racing professionally, but I was also working full-time as an educational psychologist. So I really, when, when Luke and I first started dating, he was like, well, yeah, it's great that you're pro, but like, you don't ride nearly enough. Like I was only riding maybe 200 K a week. If that, like I, I still ran probably a decent amount and swam a decent amount, but I was not riding nearly enough. And I was frankly, horrible on the bike. I wasn't any good for a professional, but once I got to the run, I could usually pick a few people off and, you know, be good enough. And he said, he was like, look, you should take a leave of absence from your job. And I really wanted to, but you know, you want that person, you want somebody to tell you that it's okay. Cause I had already spent, you know, eight years in, in university, in graduate school and stuff, getting these degrees. And I did love my job, but I was also really passionate about triathlon and I wanted to see where that could take me. So I was, uh, you know, with his encouragement, I took a year of leave of absence. But the funny thing was like three months into that, I got pregnant, like not planning on it, but we were really happy about it. (laughs) But it sort of uh, screwed my plans for that that year of training and seeing what I could do so that one year of leave of absence turned into two and then when I had win in 2014 in May um after that I was really I really wanted to get back to training as quickly as I could but safely um to see what I could do because I felt like I didn't really get that chance yet so um yeah you asked about the training but I just wanted to give you the background so we um we had a really consistent training schedule that i mean i feel like i could go out i i could just do that week that we did week in week out 10 to 12 weeks before every ironman i could like recite it easily anytime because we just did the same recipe and that's what worked so once i was back into full training after having win it was just a consistent week of i always swam about 20 to 25k a week um five uh, six times usually so Monday, Wednesday, and Friday were harder, like uh, swim squad sessions, masters sessions. If we were in California, we always split time between California mostly and Nusa in Australia. Um, when we weren't racing, so I would go with the squads there, swim with the swimmers, do hard sessions Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Tuesday and Thursday were easy, like three k swims, and then Sundays we would do an open water swim when we could. Um, the riding was where I think I really, really changed that year, like in 2014 to 2015, because not only was I riding a lot more because I wasn't working full time, um, but I was riding with Luke, who was one of the best cyclists in the sport. So um, we'd always set out for our sessions and have our own objectives and warm up together. And then obviously we'd split up during intervals, but we, I was still doing the same type of work that he was doing. And So it was usually about, um, I don't know. It was like an average week would be about 500K a week, more or less depending on where we were in the build. Um, But they always included the same sessions. So there'd always be just your basic strength endurance hill repeats, whether or not it was five by five minutes, five by six minutes, eight by six minutes, three by 10 minutes, just depended on the hill and where you were pretty much. Um, And that was just the big gear low, low cadence, just grinding it out every week. That was usually Monday. Um, Wednesday, we often did, uh, well, uh, just depend, but time trials were a big thing for Luke and I hated time trials, but I think that's what really helped me improve. So throughout an Ironman build, we do, um, we build up to two by one hour TTs within a four to five hour ride. So you would do like an hour warm up. And then an hour, uh, just a bit faster than Ironman wattage or race pace. And then I don't remember if it was like 10 or 20 minutes in between. And then the next hour, um, and then another hour of cool down. And we did that every single week, but we'd build up to it. So in the beginning we would just do, you know, two by 45, two by 30 minutes, then the two by 45 minutes, and then we might break it down to four by 30 minutes and then finally get up to those two by one hours, um, for, you know, once you were five, six weeks out from a race and try to repeat those a couple times, that was a big one for us. And that really improved my riding. Cause I was like, I was one of those people that I loved riding. I loved big adventure rides, but I did not like going hard or I just wanted to go out and enjoy the mountains and hang out with my friends and do that kind of stuff. But when it came to doing the work for Ironman, it was really, really a challenge for me. Um, other than that, we did a long, long ride with a brick, always a harder brick on the weekends. We'd usually do two brick sessions a week and then, yeah, pretty much some easier rides. Other than that, we didn't do too much, but we did a lot of too much intensity, but we did do a lot of volume. Um, and then running was typically like 45 to 60 miles a week, like 70 to a hundred K. So. A lot of easy running. I run a lot easier, I think, than most people. Most of my running is at like five minute K's, like eight minute miles. Sorry, I try to translate always because I always have people say, (laughs) "What is that in miles? What is that in kilometers?" And I'm like, "Oh, okay." Um, But we did have our go to run week too. So like, we had one interval session, but never super fast intervals. So I don't, I never did any really fast running for Ironman. I would just, we did. I loved the treadmill, loved the treadmill because you can just set it and forget it and put it at a pace you want. Um, My favorite set was always just like 20 by three minutes at a bit faster than half Ironman pace. So like just under six minute miles, maybe like 340 per K. So 20 by three minutes with 30 seconds standing rest on the side. So we'd alternate that one week. And then the next week we would just do like usually 21 800s. Luke usually did 25 or 30, but I was always like, Nope, I'm not doing any (laughs) more. That's enough. And with a 200 float. So they were like one K one K intervals on the track, but 800 of it, you were working and then 200 of it just floating until the start of the next interval. So we would try to actually do those, get down to doing those on four minutes. So You didn't have much rest because you had to, even if you came in the first 800 in two minutes and 50 seconds, you'd only have a minute and 10 to complete it. The last 200 before you started the next interval in four minutes. I don't know if that makes sense, but those were hard, (laughs) but we did them a lot. And then we always did hill, hill repeats every week and a long run and two bricks. And that was, that was the, that was the week.
0: Yeah. That's massive. That's um, I I sort of was just thinking then uh, it sort of reminds me of um, of like what Craig Alexander and and Chris McCormack were both saying. It's very similar to their style weeks. Just um, I I wonder if maybe like Luke got a bit of influence from, from the old Australians and and whether you've got a bit of influence from that as well.
1: Luke was hugely, hugely influenced by those guys. And he trained um, quite a bit with Crowey when he first went over to the U S they lived in um in carlsbad california together for a, a period of time but luke's just always really really looked up to crowey um and uh, also t- he's trained a lot with people who trained under brett sutton i think the whole i think a lot of people around that time period really everyone pretty much did the same week it just depended what day they did the, the sessions on really because you'd hear people be, oh did you do the 40 50 session and be like yep everybody does it you know
0: <laughs> yeah
1: um so yeah, he and one of like our our standard race prep brick was a, was what we would consider a Crowy session. I don't know where he got it from, but Luke definitely got it from Crowy. And that's what we would do, you know, every beginning at eight or nine weeks out from a race. On a Saturday, we'd do a four to six hour ride. And sometimes it would be like a fast finish ride, like the last hour of is time trial to the finish and then you get off and you do one mile repeats. And so we would do, we'd started about six of them, but we'd get up to 12 by the end and do, you know, 12 by one mile repeats on, I did them on seven minutes, usually trying to come in like just under six minutes usually. So you get about a minute rest and that that's a direct rip rip off of a Crowy workout for sure. He used to, he used to do that one with Luke before um, Kona a few years. So Yeah. Everyone sort of share, shares
0: the love yeah it's funny because uh, uh, Crowe came on the podcast and he he told me that was his favorite session ever so then to to hear that you do it it's pretty, it is it is pretty funny how that happens um, but it makes sense like why wouldn't you copy the best guys in in the sport um, yeah for, from like your point of view what was it like so, sort of prior to meeting Luke and and you know you, you talk about how you were running a bit but riding only maybe 100 200k a week to going and doing these, like, that sounds like it must be like a 35 to 40 hour week.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I know a lot of people were doing 35 to 40 hours, but I, I kept pretty good training logs back then. So I, w- I know we were always really, I liked mentally, I liked to see the 30 mark. I remember being like, okay, 30. Yep. That's good. That's good. And try to hit that for about 10 weeks in a row. But yeah, usually it was 28 to 32. I never really got much above that. Um, I, I, I can't imagine actually doing 40 hours of training, but I'm, I know a lot of people do, <laughs> but it's still a decent amount. It's huge. I think when you, I know people like Crowey, like they would do, they might do that for four weeks or five weeks or something, but we would, I consistently did that for, you know, 10 to 12 weeks for each Ironman build. So you do that say three times in a year and it, it adds up. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well that's what I was just going to say. It's funny that that you look at someone who might do 40 hours and go, "Oh, that's crazy. I can't understand that." But then I think you'd be shit like surprised how many people go, "Well, you're doing 30 hours a week for 10 weeks straight, three times a year. That's crazy."
1: Yeah. No, and it was. And I think that's the part that in the end became unsustainable for our our eventual lifestyle, but it was it was fun. It's really cool to look back and think, "I, you know, that a standard Wednesday for us would be We'd go out on this four and a half hour loop in Noosa up to Montville and Mulaney, you know, these great climbs with these really fast, really fast crew. Um, Mel Hashalt was always there terrorizing us and (laughs) she's, she's awesome. But, um, like we would do this four and a half hour ride straight off that to, you know, a 10 K easy run. But then in the afternoon we would do these like six to seven K super, super hard swims with, um, with JR, John Rogers, who's like a well-known coach here. And he would just rip us to pieces. And I'm, I look back and I'm like, how did we do that? Like literally every Wednesday, it it would take me a month just to psych myself up for that one day now. So it's, it's cool looking back on seeing the kinds of things that you did. And you just took for granted, like that was normal because (laughs) it doesn't seem so normal anymore.
0: Yeah. And, And, and so leading into that Switzerland race in 2015, um, was that, did you do a pretty typical block like that? Sort of like 10, 10 of those weeks combined and then, and then into the race.
1: Yeah, we did. Um, we, we were traveling a lot then. So, and with Win, our young daughter, so things were, you know, probably different than most people would have them, but we'd always make sure to get in the training. And, um, we were really good about planning for me. One of the big things when I had win was, you know, I wanted to see what I could do in triathlon, but also be a good mom. And part of that for us was actually always having um, some family help or a babysitter that could help us because that way Luke and I could maximize our training time together, but then we weren't always swapping off and saying, okay, here, you take the baby, you take the baby, your turn, your turn. Um, Training time was training time. And then, you know, when we were done every morning by, 11 or 12, then it was just family time. And then, you know, in the, in the evening or afternoon, we would maybe swap off for a run each or something like that. But we really tried to maximize our training time together, make sure we got it all in, you know, he, Luke was really, really professional about everything, which was what I learned from him the most was that like it, it was a real job, you know, and that was both of our job at the time. So we had to treat it like it was. Um, and You know, I didn't feel guilty about hiring a babysitter for a six hour ride because that's, you know, if you're going to work, that's what you'd have to do as well. Um, So, yeah, we just we did a lot of that leading into it. I I did do a lot of open water swimming before that one because we were at my mom's house um, on a lake in New Hampshire for a while. So and that was one of the only Ironmans where I swam under an hour, had like a decent swim. So I think that might have helped. I should have done a bit more of that. But hey.
0: Yeah. I'm actually, I'm curious about a lot of things you just said there, um, but, but maybe you'd like to unpack first. So um, you talked about Luke was very professional about it. So I assumed that means by default that you, you both became very professional about it um, as, as a team. So what were some of the things you did? So you hired a nanny so that you could go out and, and train for six hours in the morning, but, but what were some other things that you were doing just every day that, that maybe, you know, the everyday triathlete wouldn't do, but, but you as a, as a professional triathlete was doing?
1: Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, that's the, the main thing was just prioritizing the training and trying, trying not to feel guilty about it. Like making, you know, that was our job. And that was a big, for me, it was a big mindset shift. Um, in Australia, like being a professional triathlete is, has, or a professional sports person is seen as like a legitimate career. And in the U S everybody used to be like, Oh, well, so what's your other job? You know, what else do you do? And, um, my most of my family has always been like in the medical field and things like that and i was a psychologist and like i i had to get over the mental shift of like you know this is this is my job now and i'm i'm not pretending to be something else this is what i'm going to do so i'm going to take that seriously and um it was really good but i did always feel like oh what i should be doing something else you know so it was great to have luke there and see how seriously he was taking it as a career and how that was paying off for him so it was it was good for me
0: and so would you like I'm not sure actually about any of this but did you guys have a coaches throughout your career or or did you and Luke just do the same thing as each other and and like help each other and talk about it and that sort of thing
1: yeah well when before I met Luke I um had a couple of coaches one was um So the first person I really trained with in San Diego that um, made me feel like I could be a good athlete was Pete Colson, who used to be married to McKeeley Jones and um, and I trained with McKeely at the pool. So she was always there. The San Diego tri community is just really big, but Pete was also coaching Heather Jackson at the time. Um, So we all would go out and train together and, you know, Heather and I would do some of our sessions together when I was an age grouper and Pete was the one who eventually said, you know, like, I, I think you can make the jump to pro, like you're going to be pretty far behind, but (laughs) eventually if you keep at it, you might, you know, catch up. So Um, just being around people like that and learning from them, you know, Pete, Pete, talk about standard week. Like every single week was the exact same with Pete, you knew what you were going to do, but that was like the old school way to do it. And it definitely helped improve, helped me improve. Um, but once I met Luke, we actually just coached each other. Um, at first he was the main coach for the first few years and he, set out the training for both of us and I just did whatever he told me to do. And that worked. Um, then in 2017, right when it it was just a super busy time, we had Marlo, we started Win Republic and we were still directing the Island house triathlon. And he was, he was struggling, you know, to focus on racing when, you know, I wasn't racing then. And he, anyway, I just, I started coaching him and wrote down a plan for him for Ironman Wisconsin that year. And he actually won. So I felt, I felt pretty good about that, but I'd say 90% of the time that we were together, he was our main
0: coach. Yeah. I, I was going to add, like, I, if I had known that, I would have added a uh, coach of Luke McKenzie in, in your little intro. That I did.
1: <laughs> to one win.
0: <laughs> he just
1: needed somebody to write down some stuff to get him out the door.
0: Hey, one from one's not bad though. So I like, I I was sort of, don't want to jump too far ahead, but how did your guys training, um, change over time? Like you, you, you took us in like a pretty detailed look at, at what you were doing back in 2015 and, and, and those first like 2013, 2014, 2015. Um, but you guys raced right up until like, uh, like 2020, I think you, you were racing to, you said, so, um, yeah. How did that evolve over, over those next five years?
1: You know, I think it didn't really change that much, which is good and bad. I think that's part of the reason. By the end, I was like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm tired of this. Like, it maybe at some point we could have gotten another coach, but I also we had this crazy lifestyle that had. It was just the biggest jigsaw puzzle because we we're constantly traveling. Um, we had one kid, and then we had two kids, and then we had we were race directing the Island House try, which was a big endeavor. Um, and then we started win republic so i'd never felt like i could hire a coach that would actually um i felt like my schedule was too complicated for that but i, I don't know whether or not it would have been but yeah no we really pretty much did that week i described to you until until we finished we did try um for me i it was 2019 was it 2019? Yeah. 2019. I wanted to still race on cause I wasn't done, but I didn't, I didn't feel like I could put in the, those 30 hour weeks anymore, um, and still be a good mom and a good business owner. So we thought, Oh, we'll try to do a bit less and do some half iron man racing and stuff like that. And, um, I don't know, to be honest, it, I didn't respond nearly as well to the like around 20 hours a week with more intensity. It just, it wasn't for me. I tried and I just, I was never any good that year (laughs) and that was it.
0: So do you think that's because of the training you were doing or is it just because of how much you had going on that it was like, Hey, maybe no matter what you did, you were never going to be quite as good as what you were. Like you were, you had two kids, you have like these big businesses that were probably at that time growing like out of control. Um, yeah. What do you think it was?
1: It did. It became hard to focus. Like I do remember specifically a few rides around that time in 2018 and 2019 going out on like a five or six hour ride on a Saturday and halfway through it being like, I, I really should be either with my kids or working on my business. Like this is like, and not a waste of time, but I, There's other things now that I need to be doing. And so my mind was constantly wandering. I think part of it is because I just always had like, at that point, I'd have a really full inbox because we were, you know, I was doing everything from the design to the marketing to the, um, production and ordering, but also like customer service and things like that. So you'd always have this inbox. And like, I, I really struggled to get out the door before I had like cleared up my inbox. And then I knew that things were coming in while I was out there. And it was, that was really hard for me focus wise. And I think that's what eventually led us to say, okay, yeah, it's time for the next step, which, um, yeah, it definitely was, but I still miss it. I love, I love racing and I love training and just going out and being on an adventure, sort of care not carefree but like without so much to worry about yeah
0: yeah and and you like I guess um that that's something that I find really fascinating about you is that you have so much on your plate and like again from the outside looking in you're just so successful at everything you do um but but it does seem like you uh and I mean this in the the nicest way possible, it does seem like you just can't let go of of your athletic career uh, because you retired (laughs) and you're sort of talking about how busy you were. And and then you went straight into basically trying to become a professional runner. And I know that probably wasn't the goal, but, but that's what it was as well. Uh, Like you were, you were training like one at the very least, I think.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely have no aspirations to become a professional runner. That's not going to happen. but I do, I do think I could still get the most out of myself running and I don't think I've done, you know, set my own personal best yet. They're not going to be world best. That's for sure. They're not really going to be winning races, but um, you know, I have my own little personal goals that are keeping me motivated. And I just, I just really love to run. It's always been my strength in triathlon. It's the pretty much the only reason I was a professional because I could, you know, catch a few people on the run. So I, I want to be a, I really want to run a standalone marathon. I just haven't, haven't done it yet.
0: Yeah. So, so talk to me about what your, your running looked like after you finished up from triathlon. Um, hmm. uh, like, so what, what sort of races did you target and, and, and what were, you, what were your training weeks looking like there? Yeah.
1: So, um, at the end of 2020, I did, I did my last Ironman in Cairns, and to and I know, just based on what I've just told you, those training weeks I was telling you that we used to do, I was not doing those before Ironman cans in 2020. I just didn't have the time. Um, and I still had a fine race. It wasn't nearly close to my best, but I tried to just smile and enjoy it and finish it so I could you know, have that sense of closure for myself. And I did. And my, my kids were there. And it was a great experience. Um, after that, I took a few weeks off. And Luke was, <laughs> Luke was gonna run this um, 50K on the Gold Coast. And he was already sort of training for it. And it was six weeks before the race. And I said, oh, he said, oh, you should do it with me. And I was like, oh, okay, why not? So um, we started running and we actually, it must've been more than six weeks, but I remember writing something about six weeks, but somehow we got up to like about 160K a week of running, but all easy running. <laughs> So, we only did one 160k week, but I think I just did like 100, 110, 120 and then like maybe be- took one week back and then built up, you know, 130, 140, 150, something like that. I don't know. It was it was pretty much like that. And but the the secret the secret to success and not getting injured on that one was that we did absolutely zero intensity. So, we just went out and ran. Um the only intensity i did in those it must have been more than 6 weeks so i'd say 8 weeks was um the saturday before the 50k we did like a park run which is a i'm sure you know what it is but not everyone does it's like a 5k local um race they have in every little town in Australia, which is amazing. You can just go out and do these free 5Ks every Saturday. So the week before <laughs> the 50K, we did a, a park run. So that was legitimately the only intensity I did in this build up to the 50K. Um, and then I just had a great experience in the 50K. It was I I went in there to Luke and I said, I will not run faster than four minute K's for this. I don't want to blow up. I just want to enjoy it. You know, I was just there for fun. Um, But yeah, I got carried away pretty much with the front group. Um, And it was a few guys and then a couple really strong women as well. And we just kept running and I was like, "Oh, oh, we're clicking off, you know, 350s. And this is, I'm supposed to do 50 of these. Okay, that's fine. And it just felt really good. And we went through the marathon in 247, which was such a shock to me because I was like, whoa, how did that happen? And then finished the 50k. I did really well. Um did it in 318, which was like quite good for 50k I think I don't know I I don't know too much about 50k but it was good and but that made me want to then try a marathon the next year so that was my goal last year but I got injured
0: yeah um I it's just like there's a theme here and that's that that you just train hard so you went from (laughs) retirement straight into you know 100 to building to 160ks and uh and found yourself in a race where maybe you didn't expect to be but but couldn't help but be at the front of the race. Um,
1: yeah. But Jack, you have to understand, we were like, I was going from a 30 hour training week to a, you know, 10 to 12 hour training week. So I, I sort of, even running like 150 K a week, I felt like I was not, not doing anything, but it was, it felt simpler. I wouldn't say felt easy, but it felt simple.
0: Yes. I, uh, I I have this conversation with runners all the time that, uh, they don't actually train that hard, (laughs) especially when you compare (laughs) it to pro cyclists or triathletes.
1: They do. It's hard on the body.
0: (laughs) Well, that's the thing, isn't it? It's like, you're not doing the same volume. You're not nearly as you don't have that same sort of like, um, just like day-to-day fatigue that you have from, from training for long course triathlon or, or long, long form cycling. But, you have to be. There's such a finer balance between, oh, uh, I'm I'm the fittest I've ever been, and I'm injured and I can't train for twelve weeks.
1: Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um,
0: which you found yourself on the the wrong end of this year. So yes. talk to me about what happened there.
1: Ah, <sighs> so yeah, as I mentioned, I I really I decided I wanted to do a marathon, um, and again, this is not going to be world-beating. There's nothing crazy, but I thought, you know, if I'm a forty-two-year-old mom of two kids, well, I'm forty-one, I think what is it? Yes, yeah, 2021. <laughs> I'm 41. You know, if I'm a 41-year-old mom of two kids and I can go out and run for me, like a sub 2:40 marathon was my goal. I thought that was pretty good. Um and that's what I wanted to train for. And um I hired a woman that I really look up to, who's Melindy Elmore. She is a Canadian runner. She just got 10th in the Olympics and um in the marathon and she is my exact same age and a mom of two um, and also used to be a professional triathlete. So, but she also went to the Olympics like 20 years ago for the 1500. Like she's just one of those amazing, amazing women. And I was like, I want her to coach me because she knows exactly who I am, what I want to do. And, um, yeah, so Melindy was amazing. She was such a good coach for me. Um, but I did end up doing more into, and I was getting really quite I was getting really fast for me. And I was really happy with the training, but I was doing more speed work than I've ever done. Like I never used to run anything faster than you know three 340 per K for any reason. Like I just, just didn't, I didn't need to. Um and but I could run 340 per k for you know half marathon or longer whatever but I did not need to run faster than that but to train for the marathon um she had me doing some faster intervals you know down to 317 pace or whatever and I think for my body it just I think I learned through that that it's just that's just too much I don't think it was the mileage I think it was some of the intensity so um yeah I ended up with another femoral neck stress fracture, which is the same injury that got me into triathlon in 2008. Um, and some people would be like, oh, it was the same one. I'm like, yeah, but I did 20 Ironmans in between number one and number two. So it wasn't like a repeat injury. It was just, I think my body is um, biomechanically maybe predisposed to that type of injury. It must be something I do when I'm running, I think all out. I don't know. But anyway, I didn't run for the for 20 weeks. So from June to November of this year, um, I wasn't running, but you know, that's the huge blessing of being a former triathlete. I just did a lot of cycling yoga Pilates and, um, yeah, I'm definitely still keeping in shape. And now I'm back to running. I'm back to about, uh, 50, 50k a week, which is really exciting for me. And I want to do that same marathon, <laughs> but next year, just a little less intense.
0: Yeah. Well, Lindy's awesome. She's like, uh, she's the Canadian marathon record holder. Hey.
1: Yeah. She's amazing. She's yeah. such a cool, cool woman. And I can't wait to have her coach me again. Um,
0: yeah. And well, that's, what I was going to ask whether you're going to go straight back to her and, and build for the marathon with, with a few lessons learned.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think I just need to be you know, a lot of a coach athlete relationship, and I used to coach a a lot of athletes um, is, you know, the athlete needs to be honest with what they need. And sometimes, you know, I would say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me more, go faster, this and that. And that's, that's my fault. I know my body. I know that I can't really, you know, sustain both mileage and intensity for long periods of time and but I do know I can sustain high mileage like that's no problem for me so I think um we'll probably definitely work together again but I'll just be like yep strictly nothing faster than 330 per k and you know what it may it may be that I don't quite get to the goal that I had planned on but I think just getting to the start line and having a race I'm pleased with would be better than just getting injured again. So I'm just going to try not to be too greedy about the times this time through and just try to enjoy it.
0: Okay. Yeah. It sounds like it's just hard to, it's hard to see you. If you're not injured, it's hard to see you not becoming very good at the marathon. I don't think. Uh, And it's very hard to see you just doing one and stopping particularly (laughs) by, by what you're saying uh, today. Um, What like, I don't want to, I know you say you don't want to do it to, to, you know, break a world record, but what, what might like success in, in the marathon look for you? Is it a time? Is it, is it like, is there just something you want from it?
1: Yeah. Well, okay. So last year I did have like that secret time goal, not so secret. Cause I'll tell you, I'll tell anybody, but, um, I looked up for the gold coast marathon, the like the women's master's record, so like over 40 record was set back in like 1992 or 93, and that was a 237 something. So that was that was my goal last year. And so I was like, make or break it, I'm gonna do it. And then, you know, I broke it, but the actual marathon didn't even end up happening. So I don't even know what I would have done, but that was my goal last year. This year, my goal really, I don't think I should put a time on it because. I, you know, I think that's sort of what drove me to the, to the edge and over it. Um, I think I need to just enjoy the process and see, uh, how fit I can get and then go out on the day, but I'd love to be around. Yeah. The 240 mark. That'd be great.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, just to, just to take it back a little bit. So you're still heavily involved in the world of triathlon with, um, with your apparel brands. Uh, are you like, are you doing any, um, any other training like sort of more than just the occasional swim and ride at the moment? Like, is, is there still a part of you that goes, well, I'm used to these 30 hour weeks, I'm, you know, at best I'm running sort of 12 hours a week, uh, and you do like, and you, and you just need to go and do an extra five hours a week.
1: Yeah, no, I'm still, um, riding a lot and I've been doing a ton of Zwift since, um, since I got injured, but also before that. Uh, so I usually still ride probably about. Uh, 150 to 200 K a week. Just early morning with my Zwift crew is a lot of fun. And then I try to get out on the weekends out on the road with some friends usually, or when we were in the US, I'd go out with my dad a little bit and Luke. Um, we did a lot of uh not a lot. I we did two gravel races uh over the US summer this year. We went back to the US and um, we loved that. Uh, we've got these Ventum gravel bikes that are just so much fun. They go over. I didn't realize that a, a gravel bike really is just like a road bike that can go on a lot of stuff. And once I learned all the things I could take my gravel bike over, I was just like, I just loved it. We had so much fun. And so, yeah, we went out to Utah and did a gravel race. We did one in Vermont and really enjoyed that. So we're always still up for an adventure. It just depends on what's happening. Um, I haven't been doing that much swimming, but, um, definitely always going to be riding, you know, three times a week, if not more.
0: Yeah. Like again, I've, I've already said this phrase once, but I mean this in the nicest possible way. You are an extreme person. Like you just, <laughs> you must just be so busy all the time. <laughs>
1: Oh, not really. I think one of my, I mean, I am busy, but I'm also, I'm a really efficient person. Um, I work a lot. I work at really weird hours, like whether or not it's five in the morning, actually never work at night. So that's one thing I never do is I never train or work after 5 PM. Really? That's like strictly family time and time to just enjoy and decompress. But, you know, from 5 AM to 5 PM game on, anything goes, but yeah, I'm really pretty efficient with my work time. I try to really protect my work time. So, um, we have a warehouse here in Australia for Wynn and Malo and Luke's there five days a week because he's the director of operations, but my jobs are more, you know, in the creative and, um, financial realms. And so I work three days a week from home to really, um, protect that really productive time for myself. Um, and yeah, we just have a lot of Excel schedules. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah so so i i know like this this podcast is about training and 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 you know sort of the side effects of that but i can't have you not on and, and, and not learn a bit more about this story so you and luca um you know you, you're one of the power couples of triathlon both very successful how, how does this business venture start can you can you maybe like take me through the story a bit
1: yes um so in 2017 Um, Or well actually yeah end of 2016 early 2017 Um, we were at home at the time in California we still were splitting our time between California and New South Australia and I got this thing in the mail um, well first actually I have to back up to like 2013 when um, Luke was second in Kona at the Ironman World Championships he was one of the first um one of the first people to wear like the sleeved tri suits. There were a couple others that year, um, namely like Trevor and Heather Wortel, but they were also sponsored by Saucony, but Luke had helped design the suit for Saucony and um, then the Wortels got it through that. So anyway, he was one of the first people to design an aero suit and had done, been doing some wind tunnel testing. Um, for triathlon, obviously it was huge in cycling rampant. It wasn't like he invented the aero suit, but was one of the first people wearing them in Ironmans consistently, I'd say. Um, and he was always really passionate about that and getting into the wind tunnel and doing testing and figuring out what was, what was good. And then there's me who was like, yep, I want a fast suit, but I also really want to just look good and <laughs> look good to go fast sort of thing. Um, And in 2017, I was sitting at home and I got this little like thing in the mail. And it said to Aeroo, spelled like A-E-R-O-O-L-L-C, which is like a company in the U.S. And it said Aeroo LLC. And I was like, Luke, what what is this? And he's like, oh, I was thinking I just like wanted to start a like a triathlon suit company, just making a triathlon suit called Aeroo because it's like a play on the Australian like kangaroo i guess i don't know (laughs) Uh, (laughs) and i was like well wow that's a great idea but the name is terrible we're done with that um (laughs) no I, i said i thought it was a good idea and then um but i just thought that we could work on it together and so i sort of took the reins a bit on the branding and the logos and naming it and we both really loved the name win republic because win is our first daughter's name it's spelled w-y-n-n-e but we shortened it to win w-y-n because it's like you know winning and then our logo with the california bear and the southern cross is actually you know obviously a mix of our our two homes and cultures and our daughter was born in california but was also being raised in australia so it was this cool little thing and at first we were just going to make a couple triathlon suits but Um, I just, I took some design courses. I really enjoyed the design aspect of it and, um, learning about fabrics and products and stuff. And we just, it all sort of escalated from there. So, yeah.
0: Um, that 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 story is definitely where your you know head of creative design and and Luke's head of operations was born. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, he's definitely head of always head tester, head of operations, head of it. He's head of actually you know getting getting stuff done. I'm head of like thinking about the things that need to get done and then telling people to do them.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and did it sort of um did it take off straight away? Like how did it no. how did it develop from from that first little letter in the mail to I would say, you know, you go to a race now, particularly, uh, I I think it seems particularly in Australia, uh, like there, there is no suit being worn in triathlon races more than win Republic.
1: Yeah. And you know what, that's only really been in the last year or two that you can, that you go to a race and I like really, really see it, um, for the first couple of years, it was definitely one of those things where every single time I'd see a suit, I'd be like, oh my God, that person's wearing a suit. And then it was a double, oh my gosh, if I didn't actually know them. Cause at first, you know, it's like all your friends, it's all your mates wearing your stuff, right? Yeah. But then once they were like people that would start emailing, and at first everyone emailing us or buying things were people, friends of friends, they knew who I was or who Luke was. Um, and just, you know, friends in the community. Whereas now, most of the time when people email me, they have no idea that I started the brand that Luke and I were professional triathletes, anything like that. They're just like, they just want a tri suit right. Or a cycling kit. And I find that part of it really, really cool. Um, I love it that, you know, people will come, we try to still go to all like the expos ourselves as much as we can so we can talk to everybody and, um, just really get to know people. And we also just love being at races and supporting our ambassadors and stuff. But, um, Yeah. I love that. Like half the people that walk into the tent, like really have no. like, I'm just like the sales girl. Right. That's, that's who I am to them. And it's to me, that's uh, awesome. Uh, That's my favorite thing, but yeah. So it started out pretty slowly. Um, Not slowly, like, but there was no like, Oh my gosh, this is the best brand ever. And like, I look back at our stuff from 2017 and like, I can't even look at it sometimes, you know, those early things. And you're like, why did we do that? Why did we do this like this? Oh my gosh, that's so see-through. Oh my gosh, this and that, you know, there's a million things you'd change now, but I think where we really, we did hit the mark was by evolving constantly, um, never going too big. We always just, produce in small batches that we know we can sell for for a few reasons. One of the reasons is because we don't ever want to create waste in a landfill, anything like that. We don't want to be buying more than we're selling. Um, And then another reason is just so that we can pivot quickly and always just be, you know, making the next best suit because just like bike technology or anything like things are constantly changing for cycling technology and um, in apparel as far as triathlon and cycling go. So we just want to always be able to shift and turn whenever we can. And I think that's, I don't think we've gotten things right from the beginning. I just think that we've, been open to learning what we did wrong to make it better over time. And we've done a good job at that.
0: Yeah. And so, um, with your suits, um, how much focus goes on performance and how much focus just goes on the suit, just looking better than every other suit on the market.
1: (laughs) I mean, I definitely say it's probably 70, like 80% performance, um, 20% just looking good. No. Um, really it's all about, nailing the suit design, like the actual, like um, the construction of it. So where each panel needs to go, how the seams need to fit, which fabric needs to go, where, how long this part needs to be, how wide this part needs to be. That's, that's 95% of it. The design is the easy part. And of course that's the fun part too. And that's what I get to do, which is great. Um, But you know, if you feel like you know, if you feel really good in a suit, you're also going to feel like you look good in that suit because it's comfortable, it hits you in the right places, it fits well, you can notice it on the race course. Like it's just, I don't know, there's so much that goes into it. But at the end of the day, the most important thing is that it's going to go fast, but also that it's going to be really comfortable. So for us, the reason we got into the in into the Aru thing was because we had been working with um, a few sponsors before where, you know, the, the kits we were wearing were very, very fast, but they weren't necessarily comfortable or functional for the general person. Um, and we would like, even we'd wear it once and then it would like rip because it would have this like crazy, crazy type of edging, just things that weren't sustainable. And we wanted to make something that was more a true triathlon based performance suit, not just a cycling one, a cycling TT suit disguised as a triathlon suit, if that makes sense. So something that was comfortable to swim in and do all kinds of, you know, run in, um, we put a lot of thought into that. And so that's all the first and foremost thing. And then, yeah, the design secondary, but that's what probably, you know, makes the brand sometimes is just having designs that people want to wear.
0: And, and from here, where's the, where's the future for, for, for both Europe brands, Marlowe and, and Wynn, what, what's the big goal and and the direction moving forward?
1: Hmm. That's a good question. I don't know. We've always actually said that we don't want, we don't want to get too big. We, we sort of like that we're a family business that we are, you know, in control, but also just really connected to our people to, everyone wearing the brand. Like I still, you know, I see every order coming in. I know our best customers. I know, um, people that aren't our best customers. Like we just are, we're really in touch with everything and I don't really want to lose that. And I don't think Luke does either. Um, neither of us love managing people. We both love doing stuff. So we don't really want to disconnect from that part of the brand either. Um, so I don't, I don't really know we're, we're happy where we are for sure. So more of the same for the next few years, and then we'll see where that takes us.
0: Yeah. Um, and I do want to cut back and talk about some training more, but just yeah, training training's
1: way more fun than business, Jack.
0: Well, <laughs> I, I, I would agree big time, but I'm really fascinated in this side of, of your life. And, and I think it's like, again, from the outside looking in, it seems like, um, it was like, it's, it's the thing like that keeps linking you back to triathlon, but was also maybe one of the big reasons why you had to get away from triathlon. And, and, um, and I'm, I'm really fascinated by a couple of things like how much you do and and how well you do it all. Um, and and then just how you find time for everything. So I, I've, I've always been really fascinated in hearing this story. So, uh, yeah, we will get back to triathlon, but, but that was really cool to hear about. (laughs) Cool. Um, so when you, when you sort of won Ironman Switzerland, so to go full circle right back to there, um, yeah. did you, and you sort of talked about how you just kept doing the same sort of training week, you know, 10, 10 weeks of, of that 30 hour training week all the way through. Um, did you think that you kept seeing improvement by doing that or did things get to a point like, let's say in 2015 in Switzerland and. And you sort of just stayed where you were. Can you you walk me through those next sort of like two or three years?
1: Yeah. So, you know, we had been training really hard for Ironman Australia. It was an amazing race for me. I had, you know, a decent swim, a good bike, and then an awesome run for me. And I ended up winning the race uh, over Michelle Bremer, who is a good friend of mine, um, by just a few minutes. And it was just incredible. I finally felt like I was you know, I had one, two Ironmans in a row outside of Kona. It was great. And then eight weeks after that, um, I got a notification literally the day before Luke was supposed to, um, race in Ironman cans. I'm sitting in the hotel room. We're about to go on a ride. And I open up my email from Ironman and it said that I had a positive drug test for something called Osterine. And I'm like, okay, what's that? Is this a joke? Is it wrong? Whatever. And, it, I was caught in this really weird thing because Luke had this race the next day. And I was like, I don't want to like, I, first of all, I was just flat. Like I had no idea what was going on and I didn't think that it was real. Like that was all I can remember is that I was like this, it's actually not real. So something, there has to be some sort of explanation. I need to figure it out, but I'm not going to mention it to Luke yet. Cause he's racing tomorrow. And I know that he's not taking any drugs or anything. I wasn't taking any drugs. So I wasn't worried about him racing testing positive doing anything like that so I didn't mention it to him and I just went through this totally out of body 24 to 48 hours while he was doing this race he kept trying to quit the race and I was like no you have to keep going because like of course I wasn't telling him like you have to like finish because I don't want people to ever look back and think that you like pulled out of a race because you're a drug cheat or something like that anyway so he finished the race and still did well. I think he was still qualifying for Kona or something. He was ninth or whatever. Anyway, and then so during the day after that, I told him about this positive test and I was like, but it's gotta be a mistake. And I've emailed Ironman trying to figure it out, what's going on, everything. We never, like we barely took any supplements even, but we did take protein powder and I took melatonin to sleep um, and salt pills in races, which is like pretty normal. Um, everything that I had was always like third party tested and everything. But, um, we were sponsored by Gatorade at the time, Gatorade endurance. And in February we had gone into the, um, the Gatorade sports science Institute for like sweat testing. And before that I like didn't take too many salt pills, but occasionally I would take them in iron mans. Um, but the sweat testing showed that I like was losing massive amounts of salt. So it recommended something like fourteen hundred milligrams of salt per hour in an man um, all this stuff. So I dramatically upped my taking of salt pills. Um, and so anyway, I'm trying to now I'm jumping around because I was like not sure if we're gonna talk about this or not, but I do I really like talking about it because it's a huge part of my life. It's really shaped who I am, how I, what I stand for, just everything. Anyway, so we try, I contacted a lawyer. We were headed back from Cairns straight to the U.S., which meant we weren't even going back to our house in Noosa. And at the time, I didn't think that was a huge deal, but we just, we traveled all the time. So in that, from January to May that year, we had been in, we started the year in Panama, then we went to Costa Rica. Then we went like to Nusa, back to Australia, to Malaysia, to uh, Thailand. We had been everywhere in the five months beforehand. And, um, you know, so I, and I had a young daughter, so I, I didn't carry like a huge canister of protein with me. I didn't carry a huge bottle of salt pills. I had these in like little Ziploc baggies and looking back now it's the the dumbest thing ever but at the time this hadn't happened to anyone else like in years and years and years since like rebecca Keat. so i wasn't like i was never concerned about anything that i was taking like salt pills that they could be contaminated or anything like that so i just had these little ziploc bags of pills you know salt pills and when i talked to a lawyer he's like I said, oh, well, you know, they're going to test the B sample and that'll probably be negative. Right. And he's like, it's not going to be negative. I'm like, why? And he's like, this happens a lot, not in triathlon, but in other, you know, arenas. And he's like, it's, you're probably going to test positive for the B sample too. Cause I was just, I just was convinced it had all been a mistake. And he's like, it's not a mistake. So you need to get any, you know, supplements you've been taking so that we can send them into a lab and get them tested one by one to see, you know, if something's contaminated. So, you know, I'm, I'm just a doer. I'm always somebody that just does, and I just keep going and day by day and just, you know, it was the worst. I didn't tell anyone because I was certain, like, I mean, Luke, Luke knew and our families and everything, but we didn't tell any friends. Um, and that's one of my biggest regrets because I think they could have really been there for me in that time, but I was so, so convinced that we were going to find the answer first and that I would be able to explain with the answer rather than the problem. So, um, I just kept waiting and waiting and it would be like every two weeks he'd come back and be like, Nope, they didn't find anything in this protein powder. You know, they didn't find anything in your melatonin. Um, and then one day I remember I was sitting in the nail salon and he called me and the, he had never called me before. And he's like, oh, we, we, we found it. It's in a salt pill. I know from the race and these little packets of salt pills. And I was like, what? There's no way. Like it's supposed to just be salt. And it's, they say that they're banned substance tested and this and that. Anyway. They go back to the lab and then Iron Man's lab also had to test the salt pills and then Iron Man's lab and the lab that we use is like a a WADA lab also, like there's only a couple of them, I think in the whole US. Um, It's whatever the lab they use for everyone, but then Iron Man uses a different lab and then that, and that lab didn't find the same trace that our lab did. And then, so then we just kept sending in the same salt pills over and over and testing them again and again. And then it never came back with that positive trace again, which was very strange. So in the end, um, I ended up taking a polygraph test. We compiled all this other just evidence and stuff at the time. And I was going to arbitration with Iron Man because I was prepared to like fully, fully fight it. And, um, you know, I remember I was about to fly out to Los Angeles for like this arbitration trial in January of 2017. And they called me, uh, my, the lawyer called me and he said, look, I I don't think you should come. And I'm like, why? And he said, well, you know, based on the evidence there, I don't, they're, they're saying that they will reduce your ban from four years to two years because it's clear from the evidence that it was unintentional. However, we don't have the like, uh, the strict proof of how it got in your body. Of course, we know it was salt pills, but you can't prove it. Cause I didn't have the actual bottle of salt pills that said the batch number. So we could never get the exact batch number, if that makes sense. Anyway. So he basically was like, it's a lost cause. And I'm just like crying on the phone, like, no, we need to fight this. And he's like, it's not worth it. If you come to the arbitration, they could end up saying you get four years, you know? So just take the two years and it is what it is. And I just like, I just couldn't believe it. And I remember calling my dad and saying, what do you think I should do? And all this. And anyway, in the end it ended up being, yeah. So Ironman cut the ban in half from four years to two years because they, it was determined that it was unintentional ingestion of a trace of osterine, which is, so osterine is like, um, it's a, it's called a SARM, which is like sort of like a steroid, but it's something that you would take. It does work if you take it for like 10 to 12 weeks um, for muscle building. So like in, in the gym to build muscle. And I think it could probably help you in a triathlon. I don't know. I've, if I was, uh, the thing my dad always said is he's like, you know, he's like, Beth, I know you like if you're not going to cheat, but if you were, you wouldn't cheat with this, you know, and it's true. like <laughs> It's just not what you would choose. Um, I'm sure, you know, there will be many people or trolls or whatever that would say, oh yeah, you would, you would do this and this and maybe, but like only if you were also taking EPO or something, I don't know. It's just, it's not what you would choose. You wouldn't want to hang your head on Austrian, something you'd have to take for 10 to 12 weeks, Cause three weeks before that race, I was drug tested at um, Malaysia 70.3, where I came fourth, And of course there was nothing there. And I had a clean test three weeks before the race. So, you know, you'd have to be some kind of, uh, you just think about, okay. I was a favorite fireman Australia at the time. So would I start taking something three weeks out from that race that would build me muscle in 10 weeks, when I knew I was gonna be drug tested at that race, like it like you'd have to be pretty dumb, but you know maybe it's possible, I don't know um so I think anyway, so that that's sort of that part of the story, and that was two years but then so on the same day that Iron Man announced it. Um, they announced that another professional woman named Lauren Barnett from the U.S. also was getting a six-month ban for unintentional ingestion of Ostarine, but she had actually proved it, and hers was in salt pills, um, which was, I like, when this all came out on the same day, they announced it at the same time. I was just like, first of all, I could not believe that, like, apparently it's a legal thing, but like that I did not know that this was happening, that nobody told us that this was happening to each other. Like it was just a bit crazy. Um, but yeah, so that happened, that was announced at the same time and hers was like definitively proven that her assault pills had been contaminated. Um, so from there I was thinking, you know, and I still think to this day that the way that, that it happened was that, A lot of the salt pill manufacturers get, you know, their ingredients, their raw ingredients from China, from different places. And so they're mixing sodium chloride with potassium and this and that. And I I think that a raw ingredient in the U.S. at the time was contaminated and it went to many different manufacturers because her salt pills were not the same brand as mine um, at all. Anyway. So fast forward. So, okay. So straight away that all comes out. And, um, we, I thought that my life was just going to be over. I was prepared to just crawl away. Um, just everything. And it was, it was actually really the day it all came out was the best day I had had in, in a year, um, or however long it had been. I think it was like 11 months. Um, because, I could finally breathe easy. And that's when I really realized that I felt like I, I should have leaned on other people more because there were so many people that did have my back. Um, and the reason I think they had my back a lot was because of the Lauren Barnett situation, because she, she was also, she was quite well-respected. People really liked her. And, you know, just cause you're a nice person does not mean that you're not a doper. I'm sure there's plenty of nice dopers in the world, but, um, she wasn't somebody that you would really think would be doing it. She had a lot of other things going on for her and um, her story was pretty clear cut that this was contaminated. My Iron Man had tested different bottles in her batch. It was all contamination. So I think it, I, you know, that made my story much more believable to a lot of people. And um, I had a lot of support from the pro community. Um, most of my peers, um, really, really supported me through that time. And that was huge for me. I, I never wanted anyone in the pro field to think that I'd ever disrespect them by cheating. And that was my biggest fear. And they really, really by and large didn't, I know there's plenty of, you know, random armchair quarterbacks that still probably think that I was a doper, but in my opinion, they probably haven't really researched the situation. Um, if they had, I think they, they, they'd see with common sense, Um, so that was fine. And then uh, about a year later, it actually to another pro named Lucas Pizzetta, and then another really, really well respected age grouper named Elizabeth Waterstrat, the same exact thing happened to them. And they actually did have the same exact salt pills that I did. And they had the same exact um manufacturer. And um, they both got six months instead of two years. And they were easily able to prove where it came from, and so pretty much cleared their names. But they, you still get six months because you're um, always responsible for what goes into your body. So um, after that, uh, the lawyer got back in touch with me, and he said, "Look, do you have any, you know, proof that these are the salt pills you took? So because we're, you know, ready to take legal action against the against the manufacturer." Um, and i did because luckily my the bike shop that i went to in california was um they've kept electronic records forever so they had receipts that i had bought two bottles of these exact same salt pills um within the year prior to this happening so um you know it's never going to change my ban it's never going to change um what happened with iron man or anything like that but we've actually been involved in litigation with the salt company since Uh, since 2019. So there's been a lot of crazy stuff happening with it and then with COVID. So basically they named the salt manufacturer and we served them and they actually said, okay, yeah, but we want to name all the possible co-packers, like the people who could have the different factories that could have supplied the salt pills to them, I guess. So then we had to name like five more people in the, um, in the lawsuit, but they, every time they kept going to serve them in 2020, they were all the manufacturers were shut down. So it's like months and months of that. And then a few of them have gone bankrupt and this and that. And now it's just, it's a lot of finger pointing between all of them. And I don't really think anything's ever going to happen, but, um, I don't care if I ever get a cent out of it, but I would love to be able to really clear my name. And yeah, so that's the big story that you didn't know you were gonna get into, Jack, did you?
0: <laughs> no, but that that's fascinating to hear about. Um, and it's clearly like a massive part of your story because um yeah, like you I I, I know this sounds like may like to like you've already talked about it. Like there's a lot of people who will um hate to hate and and want to bring people down, but you did really, you like, you raced really well in, in Ironman Australia. I don't think you did anything crazy. I don't think you did anything, uh, that, that people wouldn't have expected you to do. And
1: no, I still rode like a five thirteen. that wouldn't even get you on the podium <laughs> these days.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I, but, it, but it was a great race for you and, and you ran really strong that day. And, um, and like, yeah, like I said to you, I was, I was at that race and, and, and I was really impressed. Um, and it, so it's disappointing that you you didn't get to sort of carry that momentum and and instead had to to shift your focus to to dealing with all of that um yeah. because i th- i think you probably and i know like it's it's a, it's a bit of a, a moot point but i think you would have had a had a really good year that next year as well and i'm i'm sure you think that too
1: yeah i mean i really did that was the one year i really thought i had a chance at a top 10 in kona and that was that was my ultimate goal but you know I, when it all started happening, I really quickly shifted from like triathlons, the most important thing to just like, you know, life and my, to me, my reputation was much more important than triathlon. And that's, you know, parts of that I'll never get back. Um, but I've always just, I've always wanted to be a good person, a good role model, a good, um, mother, everything. And, you know, to have that all taken from me was harder than the finish lines. Like finish lines are great. But what I really loved was being invited on women's panels with wits up and doing interviews for this and that. And, you know, speaking out whether or not it was like on Twitter or social media, but just really um, speaking my full mind. And that's a part of me that I really lost for a long time because I didn't feel like I had the right to do it or that people wanted to listen or that people would be second guessing and you know I couldn't look at anyone for a couple years without thinking do they really believe me because you know I don't know if I would in their shoes all the time and that was the hardest part for me it was losing losing that just like me as an unconditionally good person um, that there would always be some doubt. Um, I don't. I don't really care about finish lines. Like that, they're amazing, but that's that's not the important part to me. And you know, I hope anyone that knows me knows I would have never sacrificed being a good person for winning. Um, but hey, I know a lot of people do, so it is what it is. But anyway, I was like, yeah, that's. why I was like, oh, dizzy. Want to talk about this? Because I know I'm. I really struggle with just telling the story briefly, because it's you need the whole story to get the whole picture. And um, yeah, so sorry for going on about it. But it's just, you know, I do enjoy talking about it, because it's, I well, I don't enjoy it. But I, I think it's important. It is an important part of my story. And it's, I learned a lot from it. And I've always tried to um, help others uh, now be much more careful than I was at the time. And yeah,
0: Yeah. It's not something you can just brush over. Um, No,
1: like, oh, I got a drug ban and now, but then it was all good. (laughs) And I started this business. Um, I even sort of hid behind the business for the first year. I didn't want to taint the reputation of the business with, with my name. So I made it like it was all Luke's business and everything. Um, But people eventually figured out I was, you know, I was behind it (laughs) because he was still racing and I was just, doing stuff.
0: Um, I, I've got a few questions to follow up on this. And, and like, yeah. for, like I've said to you sort of, um, uh, and really, off, I'm so
1: sorry. I was like, I don't know if he wants to talk about it or not. So I was just sort of blanking <laughs> out, but I didn't know what else to say. Cause there wasn't anything else to say about that period. So I'm like, yeah. I don't know.
0: Yeah. No, It I, like I sort of said to you, um, off air privately, like I, I just think maybe, maybe the main reason I got you on more than what you've achieved in triathlon and, and in business and, and probably what you're going to achieve in running is that I do see you as someone who can inspire a lot of people. Um, And I do see you as, as, as someone who a lot of people would look up to because of the person you are as, as much as the athlete you are Um, particularly, I think you're like a massive inspiration for a lot of um, younger girls and, and sort of, you know, 20, 30 year old females in triathlon. So um, I don't, I, I know maybe you think about it, but I don't think, I don't think it's even really associated with your name. Um, and I don't think anyone believes you really did it. Um, and, and I don't think it, I don't think it's carried on. And I think you've only had a positive impact in the sport since then. So.
1: Thank you. That mean, I mean, it really means a lot to me. And, um, I mean, for me, the coolest thing has been seeing not, it has nothing to do with me, but just other, um, especially professional, but also amateur moms in sport just really going for it. And, You know, I wasn't the first mom professional triathlete, you know, Gina Crawford was at the time, like really the only one that I knew. And I remember emailing her and saying, you know, what do I do about, you know, breastfeeding during a five hour ride and this and that. And um, since then, there have been countless, countless professional triathlete moms, and I feel like and I've had a lot of them say to me, you know like you were a little part of me realizing that I could do it because we saw that you were just you know bringing win everywhere, just getting on with it and um you know I was in better shape after I had win, and that's because of a lot of things, and a lot of it was just really focusing on being a full- time athlete and mom and um yeah, it's just i I love that part about it. So now like seeing moms is super inspiring to me, especially very, very high achieving moms. And you know what they're, what they need to do every day to make it all work. And I just, I look at these women now in awe, like you are just incredible and I love following their stories. So yeah, I hope that a few people liked following mine too, even though it was a tumultuous one.
0: How did you find the the journey back after it? Um, like, you know, like re-immersing yourself in the professional world of triathlon. Um, how, did you just bury yourself in the training and, and focusing on yourself or, or, or how did the, yeah, how did the journey back in go for you?
1: Um, I knew I wanted to do Ironman cans in 2018 as a comeback race. At first I, um, You know, when it all first happened, I said I was never going to race again. I was done, everything. And that was mostly, again, because before everything came out, Jack, I was convinced that I was going to be seen as the same as every other doper in the street. And I never wanted to line up with, you know, a bunch of women who didn't trust me or believe me. I just didn't think that would be worth it. Um, but after it did, everything did come out and I realized how much, you know, people, even like Jody Swallow, who was somebody I really looked up to. She wrote a whole article about, um, you know, how like how unfortunate it was that it happened to me and how everything, you know, came to be. And just little things like that, small things of support that showed me that the people really believed me was was the, really the only thing I needed to get back on the start line because I just didn't want people looking at me like, why is she here? And I don't feel like they were. And that was huge for me. So yeah, no, I just trained like normal, um, for six months before that Ironman cans and actually, um, yeah, trained a bunch with Mirinda, Rini Carfrey. She, and we had babies at the same time, um, in 2017. Um, it's actually funny in, uh, 2016 at the Island house triathlon, which was this big race down in the Bahamas that, uh, She was racing and Gwen Jorgensen, the 2016, you know, Rio triathlon champion was racing as well. We're all sitting there at dinner um, after the race and the three of us were saying, oh, yeah, we want to have babies next year. And we all three got pregnant, like literally the next month. Um, And then we all had babies right around the same time in 2017 in uh, July and August. And so now they're all like four and a half, but yeah. So Rennie and I did a bunch of our like first sessions back together that year in February. I remember we did our first like run together in Noosa. Um, and God, we were for two women who are great runners. We were so rubbish, but it's so great. Like after, when you're coming back from a pregnancy, you can see progress every session and every week. And it's, it's amazing because normally when you're training, you know, the, those weeks that we were talking about week in week out month in month out, year in year out you don't see like huge progress all the time it's very incremental whereas when you're coming back from pregnancy like each week is like a huge leap and bound so it's really rewarding in that way and a lot of fun um so yeah i mean i think we were both still a bit underdone in cans but it was really fun to get out there and race with her and um yeah yeah so it was just it was great experience i love I love training after being, you know, not training. So
0: Yeah. You you both went on to I think she came second that day and you come third that day. Is that right?
1: Yeah. 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 Teresa Adams won. That's and right. that was like back when nobody really knew who Teresa Adams was until that race. And we're all like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um yeah, Rennie was like three or four minutes ahead of me. And that was one of my best races, one of my best runs, I think. I think I ran actually I don't remember, but I think it was a two fifty-five or six or seven I don't
0: know (laughs) yeah and and I I I think from memory um Teresa just rode rode away from you guys and maybe you were both catching her a little bit on the run is that right
1: yeah oh we were taking heaps of time out of her on the run and um Lauren Brandon had been up there with her too but um yeah Rini and I were both you know, reeling her in on the run, but she was way too far ahead for either of us to catch her. So it was a race for second and third, but not even, because Rini was quite, she was riding better than I was at the time. Um, so she was off the bike ahead of me. And then I just never caught her.
0: There, there was this like period in, in triathlon, and I, I'm not sure if it's still like that, but but maybe when I was following it, the most I've been following it, um, where it just seemed like all of the women were racing professionally in long course triathlon were friends more than they were <laughs> like fierce competitors and rivals. Yeah. Did you get that same vibe around that time when you were racing?
1: Yeah. I mean, I was, I was really lucky in that we used to have a few different like training hubs. So we'd go to Bend, Oregon, where I'd get to train with, you know, Lindsay Corbin and um, Matt Lieto was a friend we trained with there a lot. And then in San Diego, we'd have our crew there and I'd train with Carrie Lester. And in Australia, I'd train with Rini and Mel Hashalt and Radka and everyone, but, and Caroline Stefan a lot as well. But I think I had an advantage in that they were always, I feel like they were most of those women that I've just mentioned, I think are, they're truly world-class. And I was just kind of like a little step behind, which was really good, I think for our training, because I was never a very competitive trainer. I just wanted to be there and to, you know, sort of get the, you know, get the same effect that they were having and be able to do the same things that they were doing. And they always really liked the company because I was, you know, fun to train with. So there was never too much competition too much competition and training we were just all yeah really good friends and then on the start line like you often know how it's going to play out like you know because you've trained so much together carrie lester and i used to go and do these time trials around fiesta island in san diego and you know she knew that she i couldn't even stay on her wheel like she's just a beast so i don't think it was good we all had our strengths and weaknesses and i could really challenge a lot of them in some of the running uh sessions we did but other than that no (laughs) <laughs>
0: not a chance. Hey, uh, I, I was just sort of thinking then when I when you were saying that, like these people, you, your friends, who is really great um, athletes in their own right, and, and then relating that this back to your your story about the doping violation. Um, and I'm not talking about any of these. And they're
1: all specific.
0: mums now. Yeah, they're all mums. you are all except mums. Carrie. Yeah. Uh, do you ever get like a little frustrated looking back at that time and thinking like there has to be real dopers in this sport? Um, you know who are much better athletes than me and winning world championships and that sort of thing and and I got done for this stupid little salt pill that that I that probably like I sh- like it wouldn't have even mattered if I did or didn't take and and I lost like a year of my career from this but there's people who 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 like aren't doing that does that frustrate you or like how do you yeah. how do you see that whole side of the the sport
1: Yeah I had like it was really challenging for me because at the end I wanted to I wanted to help make change, but I felt like Iron Man was very against against me in that they really, really, they want to get numbers and they want to catch people doping so that they can show that their anti-doping program is working. Um, And it's it's very backwards. Um, I emailed with the head of uh, the U.S. Anti-Doping Association, Travis. Tiger, after it all happened. And I told him that I was, you know, available and open if he ever wanted to, you know, talk to people about making change. But the thing is, it's like, it's all just such a beast. And what really, really got to me at the time is that, yeah, there were people out there that are actually cheating. And they're the reason why there's this flawed anti doping system, anti doping system, because You know, if cheaters didn't exist, then the system wouldn't have to exist. And the system is flawed and the system is just catching a bunch of people. A lot of the time, like I really look into a lot of situations now and I'd say like, you know, 50, 60 percent of the people half the time, they're not catching the right people at all. Um, and it's really, really sad because if even one career is completely ruined, um, for it, that's that person's career. That's that person's life, their reputation. And there's so many people I'm sure that, you know, they know, I feel like if you wanted to beat the system, you could probably beat the system. Um, a lot of the things you see are just things that, yeah, just this, now the testing is so sensitive it's so good that they're catching things that aren't supposed to be there unfortunately. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I did, I'm not a big fan of the system anymore. At first I was like, I was like, Oh, I'm going to uphold everything. And then the more I I'm quite cynical about it now, but yeah, I'm just more confident.
0: It's it's a little hard not to be cynical though, isn't it? That they caught, you know, Beth McKenzie, who at the time, like, you, you know, you had, you had a great career, but you, you hadn't won five world championships and, no. you know, won 17 races in a row and and you just – it's hard to think that in the entire history of triathlon there hasn't been one world champion who's got caught, but then you got caught for, for taking Austrian from a salt pill. Like that – Right. It's hard not to be cynical and, and, and a little like frustrated and, and 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 maybe like, you know, lose a little bit of, of faith in, 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 in the whole system.
1: Yeah. I mean I do – I, I know a lot of really, really successful triathletes, the world champions, good friends with them. And I don't believe any of them are doping, but I know there's a lot of people doping in triathlon, but I don't, it's, it's really hard to explain, but I, I don't think a lot of the top people are doping, which sort of gives me hope for the sport, um, yeah. other sports, you know, like running, it's really hard to believe in the top of the sport,
0: mm-hmm, sure. um,
1: I, I do believe in triathlon. You can still believe in the top of the sport. Um, I could be naive, but I I do believe in it. And I was never there, like the true top of the sport. But I know uh, good friends with a lot of people who are, and I I would be uh, I would bet a lot of money on the fact that they're not doping. But I, I could be totally wrong.
0: Yeah, it's it's one of those things where uh, like, and and it's I think it's always going to be like this. We'll never know. So it doesn't. It's no. sort of just. I guess that's where a lot of the the frustration comes from and and like hearing your story sort of does frustrate me personally, because I know, like, I know that's, I know that's, um, I know that's bullshit. Uh, And, and and I know that there is someone out there who, who is like you said, like, if you're going to do it, do it properly, and, and I know there's people out there that would be. <laughs> I, doing I'm that. no
1: idiot. Yeah,
0: <laughs> no. and I well, know it su-
1: sounds bad to say, and I probably wouldn't have said it a few years ago. I would have tiptoed around it more, but like, yeah, at this point, I'm like, well, really, if you really look at it, like, you'd have to be an idiot to take Oster, and You'd take you'd take EPO. You'd take testosterone. You'd take something much better than that at that time, you know. So 100. But yeah, it is what it is, and you know, anyone who wants to not believe me now, I'm at a point where I'm okay with that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, like uh, uh, that's about everything I want to talk about, um, but
1: it's a, <laughs> it, got heavy, it, it? it seems
0: like a little bit of a, like a, almost a bit of a flat note to end on, but, but a fascinating story and, and like you have had a fascinating story. So like you've, there's not many people in the sport who have, who have done more things than you. And, and like I said, you, you are a pretty extreme person who just goes all in at a hundred percent at whatever she does. So, uh, it's not surprising that you have a, a hell of a story.
1: Mm, thank you. Yeah. I just try to, you know, on the daily, never give up. And that's pretty much the only advice that anyone ever needs.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on, uh, Beth. Um,
1: thanks for having me. I'm sorry. This turned into an Oprah situation, but I'm, <laughs> I'm happy to talk about it. You know, for a no. long time I didn't, I was just like, ah, I just don't want to, you know, just ignore, but it's always, it's always good.
0: Yeah. I, I think people would will love to hear that story. And, and I don't think, I don't think anyone will hear that story and be a cynic of you. They might be a cynic of the system, like we sort of talked about. But, mm-hmm. but it's hard to it's hard to be anything other than inspired and motivated by a person like you. So yeah, thank thanks so much for coming on. I I really appreciate it. And thank you. I'm really looking forward to seeing what you can do in the marathon because yeah, even that even though you've said you're not going to try and break world records, which you know I don't <laughs> think you're going to do that. But <laughs> thanks, I Jack. do think I do think you're going to be actually a lot better than than what you're uh, what you're what you're letting on and. And might in like might have a little five-year career in, in the in the marathon world.
1: Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. And I'm looking forward to talking to you more about um shoes. For anyone who doesn't know, Jack is a shoe guru. So um, he knows everything about every pair of super shoes there ever was. So I think one time <laughs> we need to get somebody on the episode to interview you about the shoes.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm talking, uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm talking to a guy called Julian Spence, who, who is a bigger shoe dog than me in Australia. He's probably the biggest shoe dog in, in Australia. Mm. So oh, there'll be wow. plenty of shoe chat for you to, for you to listen to on that episode.
1: Oh, cool. Yeah. I'll be your first listener. Yeah. Well, probably 10 millionth listener, but
0: whatever. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. You're one of them.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Let's talk about what, what shoe you're going to race in for that marathon when you do get on the start line.
1: Yes, of course. Sounds good.
0: Awesome. Have a good day, Beth. Thanks for coming on.
1: Thanks so much.